Let's pray together. Father, before we're done with this life, I don't doubt that a good number of the folks in this room will wear chains. And so I pray that you would sober us now and draw us close to you. I pray that the, the water and the cookies and the chips wouldn't be delusional. I pray that that little foretaste of heaven would make us willing to live on the earth without, like Paul did. What a testimony Philippians 1 is. What a spectacular testimony. You taught him a contentment in prison and out of prison that I have just tasted. We hear what more of it. We want to know how to be the kind of people that in the worst possible job or the worst possible joblessness, you are plenty. You are sufficient. And that our joy is not contingent upon our circumstance. So come, get at us, get through us, get down deep into us, I pray. And teach us these things. Make us experience yourself in this way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Cannot overstate the preciousness of memorizing Scripture. So if you, if you get anything from these two recitations, get an incentive. I'm going to do that. I'm going to learn a whole chapter. If you want to learn a book, learn Philippians. So most of you think it's totally impossible. It's not impossible. Here's how you do it. Every day, read a verse 10 times, close your eyes, and say it times and 10 times and stop. The next day, recite that verse and read the next verse 10 times and close your eyes and say it 10 times and you're done. Next day, recite those two verses and go to the next one and read it 10 times and say it 10 times with your eyes closed. And you can memorize an entire book that way. It'll take you a couple of months to do that for, for Philippians. And your life will never be the same again. I took a walk this morning. And there's a connection between, um, it was called a bush walk by the guy who took me. Um, <laughs> bush is an adjective in my vocabulary that means bad, but this was really good. Um, um, so there's a connection between... What, what I saw this morning, we drove as far as we could go along that little strip of road that rides along the rim, and then, and then we walked for another half hour, and then we walked through bushes, and, and then we got out on a rock where you made my knees wobble. <laughs> and, uh, and the connection is this. Uh, last night's talk made the point that God's aim in all that he has ever done and will ever do is to uh, lift up to make plain, to display, to vindicate, to honor his worth, his glory, his beauty, his excellence. The universe is about God. The heavens and that, those, those blue mountains out there are declaring the glory of God. This is about God. Now, that was the point last night, and 
I went further and using C.S. Lewis said that his summons to us to praise him, praise him for that, for himself, is not egomania, it is love. He's the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the most loving act because what satisfies the human soul, what you were made for is not mountains and not chips and cookies and not fellowship. Ultimately, you were made to see and savor God. All those other things are good. Food is good. Mountains are good. Fellowship is good. But all of them are like springboards to the ultimate reality that satisfies, and that is God. And so for God to lift up that reality for you to see and then summon you to complete, not just express, but complete your joy by praising him is what love is. Christians have to work hard, I think, in this world to define love in a way that is biblical, and the world doesn't get it at first. So here's the connection with the walk this morning. When I say the world doesn't get it at first, there are things written on the hearts of the people you work with who are not Christian, who, uh, things that link in with what I'm saying. This, This may feel... God's God-centeredness may feel so high and so distant and so lofty from where they live their lives that you may say, there's just no way I could make a connection between what he said up in Katoomba and what these people live for on the weekend. It's just, I can't build that bridge. Yes, you can. And my walk this morning proved it. And... I brought along a a page that I tore out of a National Geographic magazine, I think. No, I don't think this is National Geographic. It's too big. Um, I don't know what it's from. But anyway, it's a secular magazine. And I I tore this advertisement out. And this advertisement has a picture, almost like what I saw this morning, and it's selling granola bars. So Nature Valley Trail Mix Fruit and Nut Granola Bars. Um, So I don't know if you know those, but that's the picture of the granola bar there. I assume you know what a granola bar is. Um, And here's the picture. There's a, this is Yosemite National Park in America, and there's a, a peak right there. And at the top of this peak, over this magnificent vista, are two human beings, little teeny specks up there. And one of them has his arms out like this, so I did that out on the rock this morning. <laughs> and he has, he has rock, he has ropes hanging there. So you, you know, they climb this thing, which looks impossible to climb. And, and they're standing there, and they look like they're standing. And if a little wind come along, they're dead. I mean, they're going to get blown off. It's just, it makes, you, makes my knees watery just to look at it. Now, this is selling granola bars. What do you think is written at the top here? So we shot a little video out there to to capture this, and we're trying to make it work. So you can see it online, maybe. But anyway, here's what's written here, and this is the bridge to your unbelieving friends from this talk and this event to, to them. 
It says at the top here, to sell granola bars, you never felt more alive. You never felt more insignificant. Now, I picture these, these advertising gurus sitting around a boardroom trying to think of how to sell granola bars. And one of them says, why don't we appeal to the universal desire for insignificance? I mean, they must have said something like that. This is really strange. As soon as I saw it, I said, this is gold. I mean, this is just gold for sermons. I, I assume it's gold for granola bars because they're smart. These, these are not stupid people. So they're appealing to something. What is this? What is going on here? This is a secular magazine trying to sell granola bars, and they say, with a mountain and a vast terrain, a beautiful lake down here, and a fragile human being. You never felt more alive. You never felt more insignificant. And my point is, that's written on your friends' hearts. What is that saying? That is saying, whatever their language they use, is there are moments in life on, out in the, in the Blue Mountains or on the edge of the Grand Canyon or uh, looking out of an airplane window during a lightning storm when you feel unbelievably small, fragile, temporary, and gloriously alive. Written on your heart is the truth. You're made for God. You are made not to be big, but to see big. You're made to be a little, infinitely happy worshiper. You're not made to be God. God is God. And we know it. They know it. Why, why do they go to the movies they do go to? Why do they buy the big, glossy books with rivers and mountains and animals that are... They never get to go there. So the best they can do is, is put them on their little table in their apartment and, and look at these mountains. What is that? And, and these movies where everything is just big and blowing up and fire everywhere. People... What is, why do people go to those things? Get, get the... Hell scared out of them. What is that? It's because we're made to fear God. It's just, there are these tinges down inside. We're made to be afraid. And secure. We want to be in the theater when it's blowing up. Not, not in the car. We want to be in the theater. <laughs> so we don't want to go to hell, but we want to see this kind of justice and this kind of, Power. So I'm, my point is, don't you think that these truths, insofar as they're biblical, aren't stamped on the hearts of every unbeliever you know? You just need to live into their lives and speak with enough of, of earnestness and creativity and, and authenticity that they say, yeah, I've... I can taste a little of that, maybe. And then maybe you could take them, take them on up. So that was still just drawing a conclusion to last night. 
The second issue, which is now, is uh, not just that God is doing everything he's doing in order to show his glory and that that's good news because God is our joy. God is our satisfaction. We were made for God. Our, our hearts were not made to dwell on ourselves. They're made to forget ourselves and be thrilled with the mountain. I mean, just, just imagine yourself standing out there in the best promontory you can find this afternoon and looking out over these vast stretches and these cliffs and, and, and worrying about whether the genes you have on are the right ones to the people around you. Just think of that. Just think of that. Wouldn't that be an absolute tragedy? Then that's the way we are. We live most of our lives keying off what others are thinking about us. And the, the goal of life is to forget me and be thrilled with him and all that he's done in history, including including those mountains. Well, the second point now is beyond the fact that God is my satisfaction and he means to lift himself up as that, he has created a universe and set up the human soul in such a way that when we find satisfaction in him, he is glorified in that very happiness. Or the way I put it, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That's today's thesis. And the implications are dramatic. If that's true, if I can show you that from the Bible, that God is most glorified in you, when you are most satisfied in him, then you dare never choose between glorifying God and being happy. You may never think of the world that way. You may never think of God that way. You may never think of church that way. You may never think of eternity that way. I've got to choose between glorifying God and being happy. You cannot. If you think that way, you sin. That's my thesis today. So you are most uh, happy when you see him, and he is most glorified when you are satisfied in seeing him. And therefore, you should pursue your joy in him all the time to the max. So here's a verse. I'll do this again like last night. Um, Psalm 1611, one of the most important verses in my life. You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. So full. There isn't fuller than full. Full. Is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forever. And there isn't longer than forever. So I would dare to say, if you can show me any religion that can beat that, I will stop being a Christian and go with that religion. So you come up to me afterwards and, and show me a religion that can beat full happiness forever. If anybody can beat that, I'll take it. This is why I'm a Christian. It cannot be beaten. By definition, it can't be beaten. Full is full, forever is forever. There isn't longer, there isn't fuller. You can't offer me anything better. 
And what I'm arguing in this session is that when you experience that, God is magnified. When you experience that in God's presence, because of God, when, when your joy is in God and it's full and in God and it's forever, he is, he is shown to be magnificent. That's today's effort. So all we're going to do is go to the Bible and uh, show you verse after verse of where this is coming from. Because I, I found over the years I've been trying to make this plain for since 1971 or so. And, and I find lots of people, when they hear that they should pursue their joy all the time and God is dishonored if they don't, they're kind of shocked and they need a lot of proof. So that's what we're going to show you. So let's go to the text that was recited, Philippians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, look at it with me. If you don't, listen carefully. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Little four-chapter book full of joy and full of pain because the two often go together in the Christian life. And the key verses for me, and if you were, if you were in Sydney at the event on Wednesday night, I, I give you a brief unpacking of this. I'm going to do a little more detail now. So starting at verse 19, maybe verse 20 of chapter 1. Now here's what I'm after. This, this text, these several verses, three verses or so, are, in my mind, the best place to go in the Bible for an explicit defense of the statement, God is most glorified in you, or Christ is most magnified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That's what I'm looking for here. Is it here? If it's not here, well, there better be someplace else because I don't want you to believe it if it's not in the book. Verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that now that, that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. Greek word megaluno. You can even hear it in English. Megaluno. Magnified. Made mega in my life. Shown to be mega. Shown to be great. Shown to be magnificent. Paul's goal in life is that he wouldn't be ashamed of Jesus, but on the contrary, the positive, always Christ in his body would be shown to be magnificent. That's why you're on the, on the planet, that's why you live in Australia, that's why you exist, is so that off of your life could be read, Christ is magnificent. That's what bodies are for. It's read again this morning, 1 Corinthians 7. At the end of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Same thing in chapter 7. You were bought with a price. So now, why were you bought? To make Christ look great with your, your hands, and your tongue, your eyes, your arms, your legs. Everything you have as a body is designed to make Christ look great. So he says... I want Christ to be honored or magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, notice the two halves, two pair, the one pair, life and death, because he's going to pick it up in verse 21. I want to make him look good in my life, and I want to make him look good in my death. For, verse 21, for to me to live, that corresponds with life in verse 20, 
is Christ, and to die, that corresponds with death in verse 20, is gain. So what he's doing in connecting verse 20 and 21 with this little word for, which can be support, ground, explanation, is showing how Christ is made magnificent in life and in death. Verse 21 is the explanation. Verse 21 is the, is the support, how it happens, how you can say that. And that's what I hope you would want to know right now because you want your life to make Christ look great and you want your death to make Christ look great. So let's just take the death half. Let me read it like that. Now your expectation is that Christ would be magnified, honored in my body by death. For to me to die is gain. That's the argument. I could have said, I want Christ to be magnified in my life, for to me to live is Christ. But I'm just leaving out the life half, and I'm going with the death half because it's more vivid in what the answer is to how. How you make Christ look magnificent. I want Christ to be shown to be magnificent in my body by death, for, here's how it works, to me to live, to die, is gain. Now, if you were to turn that into a syllogism, there's some premises missing. Like, why does that work? Why does my death being gain to me make Christ look magnificent? And the missing premise is given in verse 23. You've got to add this or it doesn't make any sense. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, die, that is, die and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now we've got the premise. When, when he said gain back in verse 21, he said, how? How is death gain, for goodness sakes? You lose everything, don't you? No, you don't. Not if verse 23 is true. To die is to be with Christ. So there's a, a more intimate, immediate experience of the risen Christ after I die than I have now. I see Christ now. I see him in his word. His spirit applies the word to my life. I see echoes of his excellence out in, in the blue mountains. I do have access to Christ now, but nothing like I will have after. The, the minute I die, there will be the risen Christ in his body, visible to me, welcoming me into his presence, and I will know why Paul wrote, far better. You think this is good? You think life is good? It's not good compared to what's coming. And getting that straight makes all the difference. So now let's go back and see if we can see how the logic works. My eager expectation and desire and passion is for Christ to be made much of in my body. I want him to look great, honored, magnificent by my death because for me to die is gain. Because for me to die is to have more of Christ. Now, I, I assume that the word gain is a positive thing. When I gain 
I gain joy, I gain satisfaction, I gain peace, I gain contentment. Gain is not negative, it's positive. And I gain all that because I gain Christ. He is that satisfaction. He is that joy. He is that peace. I gain more of him. So here you are, you're the young one in our church right now who's in her mid-twenties and we don't know if the bone marrow transplant is going to take. She's in her day 70-something right now. Got to have 100 days with no graft rejection. And uh, we're praying earnestly for her life. Suppose it doesn't take. And the doctor said, we did our best. How long have I got? Six months? Now, if she is in tune with Paul, she's going to be saying, all right, if that's what you planned for me, Lord, I want in my body, now this dying body, I want it to honor you, magnify, I want you to look great as I die. How would she do that? She's lying there in her hospital bed eventually, and she's surrounded by all the friends. She, she works for Desiring God, and we would get around her, wouldn't we? And we would stand by her, and we would sing to her, and we would pray with her, and we'd read Scripture to her. And, and if God were merciful and gracious to her, she would look all of us in the face and say, I love you. I love you. You're precious to me. Her dad was down to be with her, and uh, she moved in with her parents. And, and so she'd look at them and say, you've been good parents. I love you. And then she'd look up and say, but you know what? In a few hours, I'm going to see him. And when I lose you, and I lose the next 50 years of my life, which I had planned on, I lose the marriage that just came unglued, the, that is the fiancé, few months ago, um, it will be gain. Now, at that moment, the nurse is standing around and, and we standing around. At that moment, Christ is going to look unbelievably valuable. Christ will be made much of at that moment. If she is so satisfied in Christ that she can look at each one of us, look at a life being lost and everything she knows on the earth going away, not coming to her, but going away and say, gain. Christ is magnified. And that's my argument. That's the way Paul thinks here. That's the basis of my statement. Christ is most magnified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And I would add, especially at moments of suffering and death. If at the moment when everything that you enjoy in this world is being taken away from you, you say, gain, Christ looks really good. Yes, he does. That's what I want to be. That's the way I want to help you be. So that's my biblical defense of the statement, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. You make him look really good when you count him to be gain and everything else to be loss. Now, if that's true, then 
you should pursue that satisfaction all the time. And the glory of God and that satisfaction in God are never alternatives. Never. Therefore, you may never say, well, I have to choose the glory of God this time and not my satisfaction in him. Never can you say that. Because satisfaction in him is the way he is glorified. If your satisfaction in him begins to diminish, his glory in your life will cease to shine proportionately. As your satisfaction goes up in your toys or up in your health or up in your spouse or up in your job and, and that's starting to be your treasure, the glory of God is just going to start going down. The sun is going to set over here while this wonderful treasure of your health and your looks and your job and your success are shining as your treasure. God is just kind of fading away. But as, as this becomes God, that is, as this is in God. I'm treasuring God and my other treasures are down where they're supposed to be and God is supreme, then his glory shines in your life. So to me, the Christian life is really a pretty simple affair. And when I say simple, I don't mean simple as opposed to easy. I mean, as as easy, I mean simple as non-complex. There is no complex. The battle is every morning to get up and open this book and be satisfied with God and then go down to the breakfast table or off to work with my heart profoundly restful in God. He has loved me. He has cared for me. He has protected me. He has promised to be with me and help me. He has satisfied the ache of my soul and now I can be a man for others and can forget about me. That's, that's, that's a simple and impossible calling. So that's what I do with most of my life. That's why I'm here in Katoomba is to try to show that to you and help you experience it. So here's the way we're going to do it next. We're going to go to texts. And I've got, I think, seven or, yeah, I've got eight, but one of them is tonight's message, and so we'll skip it. And then there'll be something to say tonight. So I'm going to give you seven, if there's time, I'm going to give you seven texts or or points. And all these points are meant to defend biblically the statement that you should pursue your joy in God all the time and never, ever relent from that pursuit. Up in the morning, midday, evening, Always, with your teeth ground, I'm going to get this joy that kills me. I'm going to get it. And it, it might. That's, that's what a lot of martyrs have chosen, is the pursuit of maximum joy in God has led to circumstances that cost them their lives. So here we go. These are my seven arguments. Number one, you are commanded by the Bible, by God, through the Bible, to rejoice in him, to delight in him. So Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, he had a chain around his leg when he said this, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. So in the Lord, we are to rejoice. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. Or Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. 
Don't serve him any other way. Serve him with gladness. Don't think that your gladness in service is optional. Don't think that it's negligible. Don't think it's icing on the cake. It's the cake. If you leave it out, what you have is legalism. Gutting it out, doing my Christian duty. For what? I don't know, but he's supposed to do it. And I do what I'm supposed to do because I'm a good, solid Christian. The Bible says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us and we are his. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Or Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. So those three passages among many. I, I, was, I was with a, a woman one time in a, in a um, panel, and we were sort of debating. We were really just sharing. And uh, I made the case that you should go into missions to, magnify, to, to maximize your joy in God. And I'll later show you why that is biblical. And she didn't like that. So she said, no, John, I don't think you should constantly tell people to pursue their joy. You should tell them to pursue obedience. And then the joy, you know, it may or may not come. Pursue obedience. And my, my response to that was and has been ever since, that's telling people pursue fruit, not apples. Obedience is what? Doing what God tells you to do, right? If God says do something, you do it. And what did he tell you to do? Rejoice. So I'm just telling them, ma'am, I'm just telling them to obey that command. Is that okay? I mean, I'm just being specific, you know. We should be specific. There's lots of commands in the Bible, and you say, pursue obedience. I say, amen, amen, I'm totally against disobedience. But I just think it helps to be specific. When the Bible says rejoice, I think you should obey that. Obey that, which is way harder than obeying don't kill and don't commit adultery and don't lie and don't steal. Those are easy because they all involve muscles. And I can control my muscles. I, don't, I won't stick you. <laughs> I won't do that. That's easy. I've got self-control. But be happy? I think Christianity is impossible. I think it's a miracle. I don't think you can do it. I think you have to be born again to be a Christian. Argument number two, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. And the text for that is Deuteronomy 28, 47, which goes like this. Deuteronomy 28, verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord with a glad heart, Therefore, you will serve your enemies. 
Because you did not serve the Lord with a glad heart, you will serve your enemies. That's the threat. You're going to serve your enemies. Because I called you to serve me with gladness, and you don't love me, you don't delight in me, you don't find my way pleasant, you just want to do your own private thing without any regard to me, and therefore I'm going to let you serve your enemies. You're going to treat me like an enemy, I'll let you serve your enemies. I want you to serve me like one who is serving you. Let the one who serves serve in the strength that God supplies. So God's the supplier when we serve. We're not supplying him with anything. The service of God is not a hard labor. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart. I'm, 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 I'm summoning you to come to me so I can lift your burden and lighten your yoke. So I, I asked my, about 25 years ago, I, asked, I threw out to the church, would somebody draw this for me? Would somebody send me a painting of this text? And here's what I want you to draw. It's Jesus summoning me to take on his yoke. All right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now, you know what a yoke is? They're big, heavy, wooden things that go on the cows or bulls or whatever you put in them. Uh, and they, they're heavy. And he's saying... Come on, mine is really easy. It's the yoke, but it's easy. So he puts it on, and he stands behind me, and there's a plow. This is old-fashioned, okay? We're not tractors. This is 200 years ago. And, and we got a plow here, and we got me in the yoke, uh, ready to pull the plow. And, and here's, here's my picture. This is Jesus. That's me in the yoke, and we're going to plow this field together. And he takes the handle of the plow, and he goes like this. And he lifts the cow up off the ground, lifts the ox off the ground. And he pushes this, what do you call it, one of the parts that goes in the ground? The piece of metal, anyway. <laughs> that, that turns, the, and he just pushes it. And I'm just... <laughs> Would somebody draw that for me? I thought... It's not quite like that. I mean, we, we do have our feet on the grounds. So we should make efforts. But somehow or other, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And, and I, w I want you to put it on, and we're going to work together to get at whatever. And, and uh, it's, but these folks, you did not serve the Lord with a glad heart. So you're going to serve your enemies. They, they serve like, oh, these commandments are just so heavy. And to serve God and to know God and to worship God is just so weighty and heavy and boring, and God says, if that's the way you feel, you can just go serve the Babylonians. In other words, God threatens terrible things if we won't enjoy him and his way. Number three, the nature of faith teaches us to pursue our joy in God. The nature of faith teaches us to pursue our joy in God. So two texts, maybe. John 6.35 goes like this. John chapter 6, verse 35. Um, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Now notice, um, the first line, whoever comes to me will not hunger. That word come is a motion, a, a, a geographic motion, like you're, I'm here and you're there and I come to you, and if you come, you won't hunger anymore because I'm bread. I am the bread of life. So you come to me. 
Now he shifts off of the metaphor of coming in the second half, and he says, whoever believes, now believe stands in the place of coming, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So hunger and thirst are stilled, satisfied, in motion toward Jesus. He's bread, and by, by implication, he's the living water, and you are coming to him in the first half of the verse, and you're believing. And so I think the two halves are meant to interpret so here's my definition of faith on, on the basis of John 6.35. Believing in Jesus is a spiritual, not a geographic or physical, a spiritual coming to him to have my soul satisfied in him. That's what faith is in the Gospel of John. Uh, my definition of faith, saving faith, not some kind of extra second faith, but the basic faith that brings us into union with Jesus is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. So I'm coming to you, Jesus. Why? Because you, you are the place where everything that I've ever wanted is. You are it. God in you are it. That's what I was made for. Faith comes for that. Or go back to the beginning of John uh, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, who believed in his name, notice the two things again, receive, believe, receive, believe, and so they interpret each other. To as many as received him, who believed in his name, to them he gave power to become the children of God. So what is, what is believing? It's a receiving of Jesus for all that he is. All that he is. Not like we say... Receive him as Savior, receive him as Lord. And I always add, and receive him as treasure. We'll get to that in just a minute. But my point so far is, biblical saving faith is not merely notional, ideas that you approve of, and it's not merely volitional. It is affectional also. Not instead of. It is notional. You've got to have right thoughts about him in your head or you don't know who you're trusting. It is volitional. I am saying yes to his call for decision. And it is affectional in that I'm saying you're my treasure. I'm not coming to you because you're boring. I'm not coming to you because you're ugly. I'm coming to you because you're my king and my satisfaction, my, my food, my water. My friend, my shepherd, my pearl, my treasure. And where that's missing, you don't have faith. I don't care what decisions you make for Jesus, and I don't care what thoughts you have about Jesus. It's not saving faith. Saving faith is rooted in the new birth that creates new affections, and we see Jesus in new ways, and we come to him as Savior, as Lord, and as supreme and satisfying treasure of our lives. And the rest of Christianity is the battle to keep that alive and to grow in it. Here's another text on that point. We're still on number three, the nature of faith points to the fact that we should pursue our satisfaction in God. Hebrews 11.6 goes like this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For he who comes to God must believe, and two things, right? Must believe that he is, 
and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Must. Must. Without faith, you can't please God. Well, what should I believe? What does faith embrace? Answer, he is. If you don't think he is, you don't have faith. And he is rewarder when you come. If you go to God in some kind of high-minded way that says, I will do you the service of my coming, or I will benefit you, or I will be your benefactor, that's blasphemy. You come to get because you're bankrupt. You're desperate. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You're not wise. You're foolish. You need a God. You need help. And he's everything you need. And you come to him for the reward. And the reward is not the prosperity gospel. I abominate the prosperity gospel. I'll say more about that this evening probably. The reward, the reward is Christ. The reward is God himself. Come to me, all you who, ho, this is Isaiah, ho, ho, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Come to me, not stuff. And so faith is a coming to God for the satisfaction that he offers because he is everything. God is for us in Jesus all we need. So be careful about treating faith as just some simple little decision that leaves you just the same you were. You aren't the same. You have been awakened and born of God when you have faith in Jesus. Number four, argument number four. So first one, we're commanded to pursue satisfaction. Second, God threatens terrible things if we don't pursue and get that satisfaction. Three, the nature of faith tells us to pursue our satisfaction in God. And number four, the nature of evil tells us to pursue our satisfaction in God. And the text that is most helpful for me is Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Jeremiah 2, 12. Be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, be utterly desolate, for my people have committed two great evils. All right, now what are they? My people, God talking, have committed two great evils. I want to know the definition of evil. What is evil in God's mind in Jeremiah 2? My people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, that's the first evil. And they have hewn out, dug out for themselves broken cisterns. Cisterns that can hold no water. So what's evil? Evil is turning away from the all-satisfying fountain of life and saying, yuck. And turning to the desert of the world whatever, and digging and clawing and sucking on rocks, trying to find that. That's evil. And I don't care what this is. This could be as innocent as you like it. Like, this could be marriage. This could be children. This could be preaching. 
I took an eight-month leave a year ago to find out if that was the case. That was one of my four goals. Do I love preaching about God more than I love God? How do you find out? Stop preaching. See what happens. Stop blogging. Stop tweeting. Stop writing books. Stop everything. And just hold on to him and see what happens. It's called fasting. Only you're doing without other stuff besides food. That's the function of fasting. So I'm, when, I, when, when, when he says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Sin is not that there are a particular cluster of things you shouldn't do that with. You shouldn't do it with anything. The way life should work is I'm right here and you are my water and my satisfaction. I'm lying down by this spring and I'm drinking and drinking and drinking until I'm satisfied. I'm saying, ah, that's called worship. Ah, and I'm turning toward this needy world and I'm walking into it not to suck on it, but to tell them there's a fountain. Stop sucking on the rocks. There's a fountain. <laughs> that's, that's your job. Every day is to so live as a satisfied, restful person in Jesus that they look at you and you say, you're not sucking on the same things we are. You know, what, what's the deal here? The nature of evil. I, I love that definition of evil. Evil is the abandonment of your joy in God and the attempt to find it elsewhere. That's evil. That's the definition of sin, I think, from Romans 3.23. All people have sinned and fall short of or lack the glory of God. So there it is, the glory of God as a fountain of living water ready to satisfy your soul and you uh, exchange it for that. And I don't care what that is. I don't care if it's preaching, ministry, serving the poor or whatever. It's wicked. It's evil. If it's not flowing from a satisfaction in that fountain. What, remember what Romans uh, 14.23 says? Whatever is not from faith is sin. So building hospitals would be sin. Going as a missionary would be sin. Marrying would be sin. Raising children would be sin. Serving the poor would be sin. If it isn't. Flowing from faith, that is, being satisfied with all that God is. God is about glorifying God. He's not just about do-goodism. The world is just fine at do-goodism. We don't need to improve upon the world's do-goodism. We need to display the all-satisfying excellence and worth of God. That's number four. Number five. The nature of conversion shows us that we should pursue our pleasure in God. The nature of conversion. What happened to you when you got converted? Well, here's a, here's a little one-verse parable that describes what happened to you. And don't panic if you didn't know this, because you don't know half of what happened to you when you got converted. That's why you need to read your Bible. Because God is so merciful to save sinners who know a teeny weeny fraction of the Bible, right? If you had to know the whole Bible to be saved, nobody ever gets saved. Um, 
so you, you, you got converted when you were little or when you were 19 or 25 or, or whatever, and, and you knew this much or this much or this much. And, and, of course, there's infinite to know. And so if I tell you something that you hadn't thought of as the meaning of your conversion, don't panic. It's just add it to the repertoire of your understanding of what happened to you. I'm always learning from the Bible what happened to me. What happened to me yesterday I learned from the Bible. What will happen to me tomorrow I learned from the Bible. I mean, I'm interpreting my life constantly from what God tells me life is like and what the human soul is. I don't know my soul. Heart, nobody knows himself. The human heart is corrupt and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God. And so he tells us all about ourselves and what happened to us when we got born, when we got saved, and when we got sanctified. Oh, 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 is that what happened to me? And it's, it, it's so great to learn what happened to you because then you can worship him and glorify him and thank him and understand yourself so much better. So here's how you got saved. This is Matthew 13, 44. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. End of story. The kingdom that is God's saving rule. Kingdom is not a place in the New Testament. It's mainly a realm of, I mean, a reign of of power and mercy and grace and salvation. So the kingdom, when it comes into a person's life or into a church, in a community, this is the way it looks. It's like a man who is walking through a field, he stubs his toe on something, he looks down, moves the dirt away, it's a chest. He's surprised. He kneels down, digs around, lifts a chest full of gold. Must be worth a million dollars, three million, ten million, whatever. It's, it's full of treasure. And he, he closes it down and covers it over. And I don't know the culture except to read it from this verse. Evidently the culture is if you own the field, you own what's in it. So he went away, and he didn't have enough money to buy the field. So it says, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. He must have looked really strange. He's selling his house. He's selling his car. I mean, anachronisms, but you get the idea. He's selling his wedding ring. He's selling his grandfather's clock that his grandmother left him. He's selling his books. My goodness, he's selling his books. He must be insane. And a a lot of people have been accused of being insane when they started treasuring Jesus like this. And, And as he was losing all these things, he was losing his books and losing his house and losing his car and losing his wedding ring, losing his clock and and whatever else he sold to buy the field, it says he was doing it how? Then in his joy he sells all that he has. So this man is an utter paradox. He's divesting and he's thrilled. He's just happy as can be. His life is getting simpler and simpler and simpler and things are going away rather than coming to him and he's thrilled because he knows something is coming to me. I'm going to buy that field and in that field is a treasure that's worth more than any of these things. He's, He's not stupid. He looks stupid. I think when the, when the Bible says, unless you hate mother and father uh, and your own life also, you can't be my disciple, I, I think what that means is you act in ways that the world says, you look like you hate them. Like, 
You go into Afghanistan with this kid? You, you must hate the kid. No, I don't, I don't hate the kid. You, you, you're crazy to sell all these things. No, I'm not crazy. You just don't know the treasure I found. And so he buys the field and he has the treasure. And the treasure is the, the reign of God in his life. That is, King Jesus has just come into his life. That's what it means to be converted. To be converted is to stumble upon, by grace, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. You see Christ no longer as boring or mythological. And he is self-evidently true. You embrace him. You trust him. All that he says about his word, you now embrace. And he's yours. And you don't earn by selling stuff. I don't think you press the parable like that. What that means is now you count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 3. Eight. So to be converted is to be granted a sight of Jesus Christ that is so compelling you embrace him at any cost, at any cost. And all other things in your life go down in value as Jesus goes up in value. And so I think the Christian life is a treasuring. I forget when it was, maybe 15 years ago or so at our church, we shifted our vocabulary, and now we have whole structures built around the new vocabulary. I, I began to, to pour into my people's vocabulary the treasuring language. I used to use the, the delight, satisfaction, joy, happiness, pleasure, all those kinds of words. And, and now I've been pouring in the treasuring language of do we, do we treasure Jesus? I'm so glad that in English, treasure is a verb and a noun. That is unbelievably helpful to say we have in Jesus a supremely valuable treasure and then to be able to say, do you treasure him that way? And to summon us. So we have treasuring Christ together is kind of a ministry of our church. And we have treasuring Christ together, church planting network. And one of the church plants in Charlotte, North Carolina is called treasuring Christ together church. And I feel really good about that, that that, that language right out of this parable and lots of other places has uh, been woven into the fabric of our church because I really think that until Christians get the, the treasuring dimension of faith and a walk with Jesus, life is pretty legal, pretty burdensome. That's number five. Number six, the call for self-denial teaches the pursuit of joy in God, that we should pursue our joy in God. Sounds opposite and people, the most common objection to what I say is to quote to me these verses. Romans 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, would save his life will lose it. So Piper, you've been telling these people all wrong. They're supposed to deny themselves. They're supposed to take up their cross, which is an instrument of, of death. And they're supposed to not save their life, for goodness sake, because they're going to lose it if they devote themselves to saving their life. And you've been telling them now for an hour and a half to to save their lives and to avoid self-denial and glut themselves on God. So what do you make of that, Piper? <laughs> and, and my answer is always the same, keep reading. It's good, good advice whenever you, anybody gives you a verse to say, just make sure you read the verses before and after so you get the picture. So I'm going to keep reading. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but... 
whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, what's the reasoning there? What does Jesus want for you? Does he want you to lose it? No. He wants you to save it. So he says, here's how you save it. Lose it. That's what he says. And, and it's made really crystal clear what he means when this text is quoted in John 12 because he says those who hate their lives in this world will keep them for eternal life. So the losing he has in mind is the kind of losing that when you found the, when you found the treasure hidden in the field, you go and you, you sell your car. This is losing. I'm losing my car. I'm losing my clock. I'm losing my books. I'm losing, I'm losing, losing, losing. And inside, you know how gaming I am gaining because to let those things go and to have Christ is, is gain. So here's, here's, here's my bottom line on self-denial. Do you, if somebody says, do you believe in self-denial? I mean, you're a Christian hedonist. Do you believe in self-denial? I say, I massively believe in self-denial. I believe you should deny yourself brackish water so you can have a flowing stream. I think you should deny yourself a mud pies in the slum to go at C.S. Lewis so you could have a holiday at the sea. I think you should deny yourself tin so that you can have gold. I think you should deny yourself... Um, <laughs> I don't know my alcohol well enough. <laughs> so that you can have the best wine. <laughs> you get it. Yes, there is self-denial, but no ultimate self-denial. Ultimate self-denial is blasphemy. It's like saying, God, I'll be here for you, and in my presence is fullness of joy, and at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you say, no, thank you. I'm supposed to deny myself. I don't want that. That's, that's blasphemy. There's no such thing as ultimate self-denial. The reason we do proximate self-denial penultimate self-denial is because we want that treasure. We want him and all that he is for us. Okay, that's number number six. And I'm just going to give you uh, one more. I'll skip one. Um, maybe bring it in tonight. Um, and maybe I can do it best with a story. And I, I'll, I'll tell you the story because a guy came up to me. I did this last weekend. I did the Engage last weekend. And, and a guy came up. Afterwards, while I was walking down there, and he said, that story made all the lights go on. So I said, okay, okay, it works in Australia too. So <laughs> I've made the story up, and, uh, and, and I, I made it up in, in, uh, in America for American audiences. Here's the point I'm illustrating. The number eight or seven, seven, number seven is the reason you should pursue your joy in God is because it really makes God look good. It's all about his glory. It's where we started with Philippians 1.21, and now I'm ending in the same place, only I'm not going to give you a text. I'm going to give you a story this time because I've already given you the text, Philippians 1.21. My point is God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And, he, and here's, here's the story. We, my wife and I did act this out in Cambridge, England with my, my, I think at the time, how old was she? She's 15 now, so that would have been, she would have been uh, 11 probably at that time. And I said, now, Talitha, you hide over there with the, with the iPhone and the, and the, or maybe iPhones didn't exist that long, I don't remember. Anyway, she had a little video thing taking it and, and I, and I did, I acted this out with Noel because I had the flowers behind my back. Okay. So we've been married 40, Two years, so it'll be 43 years in December. And uh, 
Suppose I come home on December 21, it'd be bitter cold, obviously, in Minnesota, and, and I've got behind my back somehow or other, let's say, 43 daisies. Now, daisies, just, you just have to know, don't know Ellen and me to know daisies. Daisies were our flower when we fell in love. They stayed our flower for years and years. I had to get rich and old to buy our roses. Um, but suppose... For memory's sake, I've got this big bouquet of daisies behind my back, and, and I ring the doorbell, which, of course, I never do. It's my house, and she, 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 she comes to the door, looks kind of puzzled, and I pull them out, and I say, happy anniversary, Noel, and she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. <laughs> yep, there it goes. I've read the book. This is what husbands do on their anniversary. <laughs> Now, you're laughing, and I've never told, I've told that story in Russia, Bonn, Germany, South Africa, Santo Domingo, now Australia, and every time people laugh at duty. Why are you laughing at duty? <laughs> why, why are you laughing? I mean, you should. It's a, it's a sign of heart health that you laugh. I would be worried about you <laughs> or me or whatever happened. But if, if, if you're laughing at duty, I want to know why. This is very profound. And I'm, I'm going to quit in just two minutes. This is very profound why you're laughing at duty. When I said it's my duty, duty is a noble thing. People have died for duty. People have won wars doing their duty. Duty is not a bad word. And yet you laughed. And, and you should have because it, it was just the wrong thing to say at that moment, and, and here's why. I'm going to replay the video and I'm going to say the right thing, okay? Ding dong, she comes to the door. Um, Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, couldn't help myself. Made me, makes me happy to buy you flowers. In fact, I've arranged for a babysitter, and we're going out tonight, so go change your clothes because there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with you. Now, not in a thousand years would my wife ever say, nothing you'd rather do. All you ever think about is you, you, you. <laughs> nothing you'd rather do. You are so selfish. You are, you are so into you. You couldn't help yourself. You just did what you wanted to do and bought these flowers. And there you are just laughing away at selfishness. You know what's going on here. She is most honored in me when I am most satisfied in her. That's what's going on here. It's a little microcosm of worship. That's, what is, that's the way I think about Sunday morning corporate worship. It's the way I think about you in the workplace in daily nine-to-five worship. Worship is making God look good. The word duty doesn't make him look good. Why do you obey him? Why did you buy flowers for God today? I'm supposed to. Says so in the Bible. Might go to hell if I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. That's Im I'm impressed with your God. No way. Your, your answer has to be something like, nothing I'd rather do. He's just that kind of God. She's that kind of wife. Uh, I'd rather be with her than other things. 
I'd rather be there. I'd rather be there. I would rather be happy with you, Noel, tonight. She, w- she would take my pursuit of happiness, my pursuit of my happiness in her as a tribute to her. And so will God. So will God. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, I, I pray earnestly that this little story and all the texts will make lights go on and hearts open and people get passionate about the pursuit of being satisfied in you. God, help us. We all love our health. We love our family. We love our work. We love our books. We love our cars. And these loves are constantly competing with our affections for you. And we don't want to treat the world as though it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just supposed to be a a beam leading us up to you out of heaven and into your glory. So I pray that the miracle of transformation as we behold the glory of the Lord would happen and that we would love you and treasure you, follow you, be satisfied in you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.